Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to chapter 5, verse 5. Uh, so if you want to get there, I'm going to read through, and then we'll jump into this text together. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and, God, and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to read from it, to be challenged by it, um, for our hearts to be stirred by your Holy Spirit as we read it. Um, God, we're thankful that... Um, there's nothing hidden here. This is, this is all out and available for anybody to read, for anybody to be uh, tested with and challenged with. It is a double-edged sword. It cuts to the dividing of soul and flesh. And, uh, and God, so we thank you that we have the opportunity to proclaim its truth, uh, to plumb its depths and seek to, to declare what we believe it says to us this day. And so, Holy Spirit, I just, I, I entrust myself to you and ask you to speak and challenge um, my heart and our hearts today um, with the, the depth um, of your word. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> um, well, this week we, uh, we went to Pensacola, and I don't have a video, I wish I had a video of this, honestly. I wish I had a, a video of this, because it's really pretty amazing. But we went to Pensacola this week. And uh, on two occasions, we got to see the Blue Angels fly. Anybody ever seen the Blue Angels fly? Yeah, one, two, okay, you, you did twice this week. Um, this way, that's, yeah. Um, really magnificent. If you ever get the opportunity, you should take advantage of it. They're really tremendous. Um, really powerful display of, like, what ability we actually have as a military. It's kind of actually a bit scary uh, how, how good we can fly a plane. Uh, so we had plans <clears throat> on Wednesday to go on a boat with my brother-in-law and out and watch the Blue Angels fly and get to see the whole show, you know, whole practice or whatever, uh, out on the water. Big view of everything they do. But the day before that, we were at the pool at the house that we're staying at, and we're outside playing or whatever. Didn't realize that they were also practicing that day. And <clears throat> that day, they were like flying over our heads out of nowhere. I mean, you could hear 
the sound of an F-18 surrounding you, but you didn't know where it was coming from or where it was going. And then all of a sudden, out of the trees, you just go whoosh, you know? And I'm going, oh my gosh, I am so glad that I'm not an enemy of the United States right now, <laughs> right? Like, I am so proud to be an American, you know, just like saluting the flag as they go, like, I have, no, I have nothing to do with you. You're, you're great. We love you. You're perfect. Um, it was really kind of tremendous. And, <clears throat> you know, one of the reasons that uh, the Navy seeks to do this kind of a display is for, there's a couple of reasons, I believe. One is to recruit young, you know, pilots to go, look at what you could do, you know. You want to you wanna be a part of the Navy? This is what you get to do in the Navy. You get to fly an F-18 off of an aircraft carrier into enemy territory and, and do this stuff. So, so one is a recruitment tool, right? Like, here we are. This is the big guns. You know, this is what we do. It's actually the guns that are retired. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, but they do this at, like, great risk, actually. Uh, there have been at, at least three that I found since 1985, times when just during practice, right? <clears throat> the, you know, practice or a show, air shows, uh, where the F-18 has crashed uh, during an, a Blue Angels performance, right? And you can look at that and go, why are we just performing? Why? Why would we risk life and limb for this kind of display? Most of the scenarios where the pilot crashed, you know, the official word is pilot error. You know, we don't... We don't know really to verify whether that you know is true or not. I mean, they're machines, so something could have gone wrong. We don't know. Um, <clears throat> but you look at it and go, why would we just have such a risky display of things? Why would we put this out there this way? And for the United States, it's it's twofold importance. One, again, to recruit, but also to show force to those around that we know how to wield this uh, this jet, and and you don't really want to mess with us when we have this power. And there's not many people, you could, we could give people all the jets we want, okay? If we want to like help some country in a war by giving them a jet, we could. It just would take years to train a pilot in such a way to operate said jet. So without the training that you could have to fly this thing, you don't really have the power to actually fly it. So why the risk? The risk is, you know, it's, it's a calculated risk. It's, like it's, it's worth it for us to have this display to show our strength because we need to show the world this is how powerful we are. Um, that's a calculated risk for, for the Navy to take, um, to do these kind of shows, practices, displays. Um, but also, they're just training their pilots, like keeping their pilots sharp for battle, right? Any of those pilots of Blue Angels could jump in an operable F-18 today and go to war, right? Like, they're, they're also training purposes to be this good. Um, <clears throat> so I say that to say, like, things that are important... <clears throat> Um, there's a lot at stake with things that are important, right? I mean, it's important to our Navy to go, this is what we can do, and this is what we're calling you to be as a Navy airman or whatever, like this, to show, like this is what it is. They think it's important enough they will put pilots at risk while doing these death-defying tactics, flying 18 inches from one another at 400 plus miles an hour, like it's crazy, okay? But the reason they do it, they, they believe the risk is worth it, right? <clears throat> and so too, for us, as we look at what it is to follow Christ, okay, this passage challenges us as a church, um, as we're in the world, 
to say, count the cost. Like, there's a cost that's happening as we deal with what's in our hearts. And be aware that there is, like, a risk with what we're dealing with in the world and in our flesh. Like, there's a real thing at stake that God has called us to be aware of and prepared for and ready to fight uh, the battles that come our way and to fight sin that might try to entangle us. There's a real risk. We can be confused and deceived by sin enough to think, well, there is no harm that could be done. It's just mine. But that's simply a lie to ourselves. There's a lot at risk when we're talking about sin. And as I've said earlier, I said last week, and I said this week, just remind us, 1 Peter's written to the church. 1 Peter is writing, uh, Peter is writing to the church throughout Turkey. So his challenge here, and we'll get to it uh, in, in the verses, is his challenge with these things is to the body of Christ to say, look inside yourself, right? Just like we uh, had the scripture earlier to, during worship, search my heart, O God, and see if there's any unclean way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our cry as a person following Jesus, to say, Lord, I want you to search my heart, root out anything that is unclean in me. And so we're challenged with this in the context of suffering today, um, and Peter wants to speak to the church and say, there are a couple ways that you may be suffering in your context, and he's kind of hit on it here and there, <clears throat> but first, he wants to point out to us in verses 12 to 19 that there's two ways that you might be suffering in this world. And the first way you might be suffering in this world in the context that he's writing to and the context really that we live in is that you might be suffering for the name of Christ. You might be suffering for Christ. Uh, verses 12 to 14 as well as 16. And there's another way you might be suffering. You might be suffering at the cost or at the at the, um, at the hands and consequences of your own sin. So claiming the name of Christ could bring suffering in your life, and walking in sin could bring suffering in your life is what Peter is trying to point out to us and challenge us. That be sure that the suffering you're taking on isn't due to your sin, but rather due to your claim of Christ as Lord. You're, you might suffer in this life for where you're at and what you're doing. His challenge to us is look inside your heart and make sure that you're not calling suffering for sin, suffering for Christ. This is his challenge to the church in, first Pete, in, in Turkey at this time. Is that some may be claiming, I'm suffering, I'm hurting. And he's saying, you're hurting because the sin that you're in. And you're hurting because you've claimed the name of Christ. And those are two separate things. And that's what Peter's trying to point out to us. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He starts out by saying, don't be surprised when you are suffering for the name of Christ. Uh, he says this because Jesus told us this would be so. Uh, Jesus predicted before he went to the cross, he said that we would indeed suffer for the name of Christ. In Mark uh, chapter 13, verses 9 to 13, Jesus says this, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. 
and brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says, there's a reality that if you claim the name of Christ within the context of this world, that those around you are going to take offense at that, and they're going to hate you and, and, and uh, persecute you for um, claiming the name of Christ. So don't be surprised. Jesus says it again in John 15, 18 to 21. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you, were not, uh, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus promises this will, that this will happen, that we will suffer for the name of Christ, and that he'll provide for us as we speak to those about our faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit. He also promises us that the world is going to hate his followers just as, it, as, it, as the world hated him. And so you might be asking, well, how does the world hate Christians? How does the world look at Christians and hate them? And I'd say to you, there's a number of ways, right? There's a number of ways that the world looks at Christians and goes, we hate you. And it seems like the strongest term, they may not say it out loud that I hate Christians, uh, right? But Peter is, Jesus is pointing out, the bent of their heart is to have taken offense at Christians of what they're claiming. And so the actual trajectory is toward hatred of what a Christian is claiming. And so how, how does the world hate Christians? First, I, I came up with, I think, two main ones. So the first one is this. Maybe there's more ways, but I think they call it, kind of fall under these two major ones. Uh, the first reason the world may hate Christians is because of the claim, the exclusive claim, of faith in Jesus as the only way to be reconciled to our Creator, saved from the penalty of our sin and given the gift of eternal life. The world looks at Christians, and we're saying, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one inherits eternal life except through Jesus. I believe that statement. And as I say that statement to someone in the world who does not, has not come to faith in that statement, they shirk against it. They, they prickle up against that kind of a thing because they say, well, everyone's got to have a chance, right? What if those, what if those, what if, what if these, what if those, and, and start to take offense at the statement of exclusive entrance into heaven based on the faith in Christ Jesus and his dying work on the cross for us. There's a variety that kind of fall under this. Many simply don't believe in an afterlife, right? And they view any religion in general as a means of controlling people for personal gain. Literally, like, the, the, look at a Christian saying, this is the way to inherit eternal life, and they just say, there is no eternal life. There's no afterlife. We're just floating along like biological creatures, and when we die, it's just over, right? That's what people say. And so they look at Christians and go, all you're doing as Christians is just controlling people with your, moral, uh, with your moral standard and your belief set. That's one way they hate the way we think. Then there's those who do believe in an afterlife, and most of those who do believe in an afterlife uh, believe in a works-based relationship with our placement in heaven or in the next life. Right? They say, 
No, it's not based, it cannot be based on just faith in Christ. It, it must be based on some sort of work, right? Like, I'm stacking up good deeds. I've got more good deeds than that guy, or I've got less bad deeds than that girl, or whatever, right? And they're saying, in comparison, I'm a pretty good person. So since I'm a pretty good person, I get to go in. The problem is that typically this kind of viewpoint goes, uh, I don't really know where the line is on where good people are, done enough good, and bad people have done too much bad. It's very difficult to get a person in this framework to go, this is how much good you have to do to outweigh the bad that you've done. And so this group of people looks at Christians and goes, no, 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 it's not based on what someone else has done. His death can't be a substitute for you. You have to earn it by your own actions and behaviors. And then there's another group of people that hates Christians for this exclusive claim, and those are uh, those of a universalist persuasion who vaguely allow that eventually all will just make it to heaven. And it sounds nice, you know. Uh, you know, it, it just isn't based on anything that we can really concretely put our finger on. It just says, well, I think that eventually it'll all work out. And again, the same problem that a works-based person runs into is found in a universalist where the, everyone gets in, we're just not sure when and how, and like if it's next life or the life after that, or there's just a very vague uh, construction of everyone just eventually makes it in. You might have been bad in this life, but you kind of like work it on the next one or between phases or whatever, you kind of get there later. We just kind of push it out into eternity as far as we can go. <laughs> okay. And so when we claim faith in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death on the cross for our sin as the only way to obtain righteousness necessary to stand before a holy God, those who don't believe this look down on, or more emphatically, hate us for holding such a belief. Because it's in complete contradiction with how they see the world. Look at Christians and go, how could you say there's only one way to go to heaven? What about all these people, right? 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17 says this of the reality of the gospel within our world. Paul writes, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. It's not a popular, popular thing to say, Christ is the only way. The problem with it is that Holy Spirit has testified to that in my life. He has said to me, there is no good you can do to outweigh the darkness of your heart. Right? And each of us that have come to a knowledge of that in Christ Jesus look at our lives and go, there's not enough time in this life to make up for what bad I've done to make me holy enough to a God that is perfectly holy. There's just not enough time even for me to make up for that if I even could, if I even had the fortitude and strength to start today and be holy the rest of my life. It wouldn't add up. I'm still broken, and my past is still my past. 
But thanks be to God that it's not based on my works or my righteousness, but rather by the substitution of Christ on the cross for me that I can look at my past and go, it is finished, it is done, my sin is paid for already at the cross of Calvary. And it is no longer on my works that I base any of my righteousness. What will change when you are so wooed and compelled and challenged by that truth is that your life will change, your desires will change. But are you changing for the sake of saving yourself? No, you're changing because Christ is changing you. And so the world looks at Christians and says, I, don't, I can't get on board with this. I hate you guys. How could you come against me and my family and this ancestry of history and say that we don't know Christ and that we're going to hell? And truthfully, that's a very hard question. It is. It simply is hard to say how has God in his justice seen who is in and who is out. But he has. I thankfully am not the one that is to judge. God is the one to judge. And I am responsible only to respond to the gospel that's been proclaimed to me and then discharge that gospel to as many people as I can with the gifts that God has given me to give. And the same is to you as a Christian. God has spoken to your life in a very specific and powerful and personal way. And his challenge to you is to now that your heart has been revived and changed by the Holy Spirit, to look around your world and go out and say, okay, this is how God has equipped me to then push this forward, to make disciples as he makes disciples. And lo, the Lord is with me wherever I go. We were talking about that earlier. The world hates this message that it's not based on our works, and that there's a limited number of seats in, a, in such a way, right? That only those who claim the name of Christ will enter into heaven. The world hates this standpoint. The world also hates us in this regard for holding the Bible as the moral authority of our lives. The world looks at us and says, you're just taking your morals and enforcing them upon us. Many feel that our holding of a biblical framework of morality makes the world feel that we are judging them. Um, our standard of, sorry my notes are a little scratched here, but our standard of conversation and activity will be perceived by those around us because it should be formative to our speech and our actions. So as you, you know, uphold the morals of a biblical framework. Yet, you know what's going to happen is that people are going to see how you live. And they're going to actually start to take offense at you changing the way you live. You may have seen this if, if, in your life. I'm not sure what your testimony is exactly. Um, but you may have seen this in your life when you were not a Christian and then became a Christian. Your desires for things changed. Your desires for certain activity and speech changed. And those friends didn't change. They were around you. And they saw you change. And as they saw you change, they're like, hey, what's going on? You're not cussing. You're not going out to these parties with us. You're not doing this and, this and that with us. Are you better than me? Are you saying you're holier than me? Like, that is the immediate offense taken by those that are around. I've experienced this in a couple of directions. Um, and, you know, I, yeah, I think this is just true. As you take up the moral standard of Scripture, people will perceive it in you. 
even at the coffee shop or in the interactions, people have uh, looked down on me for not participating in coarse joking or swearing. I ain't, like, rolls off my back at this point, okay? Like, I'm not worried about impressing anybody, okay? Like, I'm not here to impress. Um, and so, yeah, I've been looked down upon because I'm not cussing with people and I'm not engaging in the coarse joking that they may be engaging in. But I've also seen people actually, in another way, uh, respectfully guard their own behavior and speech around me because of their awareness of the way that I live and speak. And the truth of this is, and this gets to what I'm talking about, the world thinking we're judging them, I have never asked anybody to change their behavior around me. I've never done that. I've never been, hey, listen, when you're around me, you need to clean up your speech. I've never done that. When you're around me, this is what's going to happen. I've never had to do that, okay? Have I challenged people in sin? For sure, I have challenged specifically brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, which is my calling. But actually, the Bible doesn't call us to judge those outside the church. The world may feel that we're judging them based on our moral standard, but the truth is the Bible explicitly tells us that God is the one who judges the outsider from the body of Christ. It's not our role. It's not my role to come in and judge those who don't believe in the Bible. We kind of slowly morph through this in American like, culture, where there was a time when everyone kind of held the Bible in esteem and held churches in esteem and said, okay, if the pastor says it, then that's important. And if the Bible says it, then that's important. But that has waned so much. It's totally, it's practically gone at this point, okay, in, in a way with the world. And so, the world feels that we're judging them based on our morality, but the truth is the Bible says we are not to judge at all. We're only to take care of our own household as, body, as the body of Christ. And so the world hates us because we hold to a biblical moral standard. What is our response to the world hating us? 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also, share, may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter's challenge to those who are indeed suffering because they've taken up the name of Christ in, in this letter is saying rejoice rejoice that you suffer for the name of Christ. Rejoice that people look down on you because of your, your morality. Rejoice that they look at your, uh, the, the hope of your salvation and, and uh, accuse you. Rejoice. Because in this, they are actually seeing that you have taken a firm stand on what you believe and where your hope is. If you're insulted for Christ, he says you are blessed. And the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When I was reading this, it reminded me of uh, Stephen in the book of Acts. And you know the story. Stephen was called to be uh, a servant of tables. He was called to actually just distribute food to people who had need of food in the community of believers. Because as they left Judaism, they were no longer cared for in their social dynamic for food they needed. So they appointed believers full of the Holy Spirit to go about making sure that widows and orphans had food in their midst because their social structure had been broken because of their faith in Christ Jesus. So within the church, they're going, hey, is anybody a believer in Christ that needs food? Let's make sure you're taken care of, right? So they're going around doing this. In the midst of that, Stephen is challenged. 
And he gives testimony of all that God has done from the beginning of biblical history unto Christ. And he accuses the, the fathers of Judaism of actually you know, taking Jesus to the cross and being crucifying him. And so they're beginning to uh, accuse him and beginning to stone him. And in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 to 58, it says this. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of his persecution, okay, the crowd around him, the leaders of Judaism about to stone him, rushing in upon him, he's looking up to heaven and seeing heaven and seeing Jesus' glory from earth, seeing Jesus' glory, seeing him at the right hand of the Father, Holy Spirit full upon him. And he said, testifies to it in their midst, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If we claim the name of Christ in this world, we'll be hated. It's not a liked thing. We don't feel it so much in America because there's freedom of religion, all this kind of stuff, and there's a lot of not like explicit persecution. But in so many places in the world, this is a reality to claim the name of Christ and to suffer as a result, physically. First Peter 4, 16 sums this, this piece up. If, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So first, in regard to suffering, we are to rejoice if we suffer for the name of Christ. But Peter's turns in verses 15, 17, and 18 to challenge the church with this. Verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. He says, don't do it. Don't suffer the consequences of sin. Don't allow your sin to go so far that you bring about suffering on yourself, upon your family, upon your church. Don't sin so much as a murderer, a thief, evildoer, meddler, that you bring suffering upon yourself. The grace of God is that there are consequences to our actions, right? It is a grace of God that, like, when I scrape myself, I bleed, right? It's a, it's a grace of God that there are consequences to our actions. Why? Because he's trying to protect us. He's trying to care for us. He's trying to uh, point us unto himself, not in just an earthly sense, but also in an eternal sense. He's going to allow you to go through all kinds of consequences to see that even though you're enduring fleshly consequence as a result of your sin, 
He wants to do something inside of your spirit. He allows these consequences to happen, this suffering to happen in us, because he's saying the action you are taking in sin is not just a physical action. Our sin is a spiritual action. We think of morality often as just this list of things that we do and don't do because it's just, it just is what it is, because daddy said so, right? That's kind of literally how we take it. Like, this is the do not do list. And I'm just not supposed to do them because dad said so, mom said so. And that's not the case. God is your creator. He made you. He formed you in your mother's womb, right? He put his breath of life into your lungs. And what he formed in you is not just flesh, but it is spirit. And so when he gives us consequences in the flesh, he's doing so to remind us that there's something deeper going on that isn't just flesh, that is spirit. So why not be a murderer, right? Why not be a murderer? Pretty obvious, right? God created all mankind. Why murder? Don't you know that if you murder someone, you're taking the life of someone who God created? You're you're ripping the opportunity they might have to respond to the truth of God in their life by ending their life on your terms instead of God's terms. You're murdering them. Don't murder because that person is not just flesh. They're spirit. And do they know Christ? Do they not? We don't know. Now, that might seem like an obvious thing to say to a church. Surely, hopefully, a church knows that murder is wrong. But I think Peter starts with that very obvious one to say, the point is that fleshly sin has spiritual consequence. And if we care for the body of Christ, and we, if we care for what God is doing in the Spirit, right, if we really want darkness to flee at the name of Jesus, then we have to recognize that the sin of our flesh has spiritual consequence as well as fleshly consequence. The reason that you, right, just as, as a parent, right, as an example, the reason that you would swat your kid's hand as they reach for a hot stove is to let them know that touching hot stove equals hurt. It's a lesson. It's a teaching. And in the same way, right, the reason God allows consequence of sin to occur in the flesh is God telling us by his grace that there's something deeper at stake than just the flesh consequence and suffering of this than than you're walking through. There's something spiritual going on, and that's why it's wrong for you. Why does God not, I mean, Peter, just in last, in last week, uh, instructs the church not to participate in orgies, right? Like, that should be obvious. Why would he give us a sexual uh, morality to walk by? Because our interaction with each other is not just physical. It is spiritual. In marriage, God has taken two people and made them one person. He didn't like morph their skin together into a transformer being, right? Like, we didn't, like, fleshly become one and always connected, right? That is a spiritual reality that we have taken covenant with our God in heaven and said, I'm becoming one with this person. 
And so to break that causes a brokenness in the spiritual way. Same for a man that looks at things wrongly, right? He's breaking faith with his wife because he's indulging himself in seeing other things rather than being cheered by the the wife of his youth. It's a spiritual matter, not just a physical. That's why God can say to man, or Jesus can say to us, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, it's the same as adultery, right? Are the consequences the same? No, they're not. Is the spiritual realm of ramifications very similar? Yes, they are. So Peter says to the church, he's saying this to the church, do not suffer on account of thievery and evildoing and meddling is what he finally comes down to, being a meddler. Just causing, simply causing trouble for the sake of causing trouble. Because doing so in the flesh is not just a physical thing, it is a spiritual thing. It says, do not let any of you suffer in this way. And he says this, you know, he backs this up more emphatically by saying in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? His challenge to us as believers is that we look at one another and go, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any unclean way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That is his desire for us. Why? Because he just wants to give us a naughty list? No. Because he actually cares for us more than we care for ourselves. He actually desires flourishing for us more than we desire flourishing for ourselves. We settle for fulfillment at the level of flesh. He desires fulfillment in the Spirit, that we will be one with the Father in heaven as the Father is one with the Son and the Son is one with the Spirit. So us are one in Him and in one unity together. That's what God is striving for. He's not concerned about all the fleshly desires being fulfilled. He's more concerned and most concerned about our heart being fulfilled completely and wholly in Him. To conclude his thought on this, he just says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you suffer for the name of Christ, yes, it might hurt in the time, right? Peter was stoned to death and it hurt. Or sorry, Stephen was stoned to death and it hurt. Peter was hung upside down with ink. Much better, right? Um, <laughs> right, like, this is the reality of our apostles that we follow. They died at the stake. And so how do we look at Jesus and, and the followers that came after him and just assume, oh, it's just going to be smooth sailing once I follow Jesus because the world's going to love me because I'm going to be a better person. <laughs> the world can be good people. The world is good at being good. Okay? Good is not enough for a holy God. God is holy. And he has provided a way in Christ Jesus for us to be righteous. Not in our works, 
but on his. And so he says, if you suffer according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He turns at this point to some application in leadership at the church. He says this, in respect to the fact that churches, uh, that the churches Peter is writing to are wrestling with suffering and apparently wrestling with whether their suffering is for Christ or on account of sin, Peter turns to elders in the church. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 5, So I exhort you, or so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter says, listen, I'm an elder. And uh, so his basis for exhortation to those who are leaders in the church, and just for very explicit clarity in our context, uh, I'm an elder. And Luke Sawyer is an elder in our church. There's two elders, uh, Abby's husband. And, and so we're given this responsibility. This, this word is for us as shepherds over you, the next four verses. I'm going to say it to you so that you know it and it's clear, but this word is for Luke and I to hear and heed. Peter first gives his qualifications. First, I'm a, I'm a fellow elder with you. Second, I'm a exact witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I just, I couldn't help but take a moment to remind ourselves how much Peter witnessed the suffering of Christ. Like, he was there when he was arrested. He, he was there in the garden, and in Luke's account it says, and the Lord turned, after Peter denied him three times, the Lord turned in the garden and looked at Peter in the eyes, Right? And Peter remembered immediately the saying, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. This is how much Peter witnessed the suffering of Christ. He not only saw it happening, he felt himself responsible in it. As the Lord looks at him and says, you've denied me three times. I told you it happened, and it happened. Even with warning, you stepped into it and did it. And as soon as that happened, he went out of the garden and wept bitterly. Man, when the Lord looks at you and says, there's no hope for you outside of me, this is the response. First, you're undone. Because you're like, Lord, I'm unworthy of you. I can't stand before you. And then... This beautiful thing comes in the end, like Jesus comes back to life, right, and speaks to Peter and says, Peter, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep, Peter, feed my sheep. This is the Jesus we serve, right, that we would truly feel the depth and brokenness of our hearts and bear it and weep bitterly at what we have done to our God. And yet God would come to us and say, get up and feed my sheep, go and sin no more. So Peter says, as a fellow elder, as a witness of the suffering of Christ, and as a partaker of the glory to be revealed, just speaking to them clearly that, like, I'm going to see God's glory. I have full confidence in my salvation. He's speaking of his full eternal hope, right? He's just saying to them, I know I'm going to see the glory of the Lord. 
I'm confident in where I'm at with Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell it to you specifically. So that's pretty bold. But that's, he's at a point in his life where he can say, I know where I'm going when I die. And I'm at a point where in my life that I will say the same thing. I know where I'm going to go when I die. I can't control my next step. I said that last week. You can't control your next step, right? You don't know when it's going to be your last step. We don't know how much time we have. And as a result, our time is up. So I know I'm a partaker in the glory that will be revealed. So this is what Peter challenges us as elders to do. He says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. God has entrusted leaders in the church to look at the body. And I think in, in respect to what he has just said, he's going, listen, church, you're wrestling with whether you're suffering on the account of your sin or whether you're suffering on account of the name of Christ. It's my job as an elder in oversight to discern that in our body. To go, listen, brother, I know you're suffering and I feel sorry for you, but you're suffering on account of your sin. It's, it's my job to say that kind of thing to people. Right? It's my job to also then say, listen, brother, uh, I know you're suffering, but take heart. You're suffering for the name of Christ. Right? Like, it's my job as an elder to, to come and shepherd your heart and go, yeah, it hurts. This is hard. This is a really hard thing. Like, let's pray about whether there's something in you that's sin that you need to root out. Because once we root that out, then this suffering that you're presently in will go. This suffering that is actually destroying your spirit will go once you're able to root this out. Can I promise you that it's going to be easy after that? No, because you're still claiming the name of Christ. But then I can say to you, man, this suffering, rejoice. God counts you blessed that as you claim the name of Christ, you're suffering for that name. Rejoice. Jesus knows how you feel because he too walked in no sin, yet was accused as a sinner and hung on a cross. The word says that I'm to do this not under compulsion, but willingly. Them to willingly receive the call to eldership. That I'm not to be compelled to it. And as we look in our context and look for people who would serve as elder, we're not just choosing people, oh, you fit? Okay, let's go. It's about a calling. It's about has God actually called you? You may qualify in terms of the lists that are given in First uh, Timothy and Titus. Um, but that's all moot if you're not willing and called to it. This role of elder is um, one that, as God would have me, not for a shameful gain, but eagerly. The position is not one of like higher standing in faith. We can really get that wrong very frequently. We look at the position of elder and say, okay, if I achieve elder, then I'm more holy. No, this is not how the kingdom works. The kingdom is upside down, okay? The, the leader is the servant of all. That's where I'm to go. I'm to humble myself more to be a servant of all. It's not about gain in any way. It's about serving as Christ served. 
He challenges me and other elders with this, to not be domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. I tell you, it's very hard to walk that line. I try to be an example to the flock as much as I can. But it's very easy when you come up with tension and and friction to not just try and say the thing and compel and force people toward the right position. It's very hard to speak the truth in love, turns out. It's much easier to just say truth. And so I hope and pray that as I walk out this office, that I do so in not a domineering way, but in a heart that the Lord has for us that would be spurred unto love and good deeds. In verse 4 he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The implication here is that I'm not in charge. No elder of any church is in charge. I'm an understudy to the chief shepherd. There is one chief shepherd, and his name is Jesus. And regardless of what denomination you're in, or what non-denomination you're in, in any body of Christ, the elder submits to Christ. And if I'm not in submission to Christ, then please call me out, because I'm in the wrong spot. The reason God calls elders to lead churches is that it's very difficult to discern in our lives which way is up and which way is down. It's actually challenging to know how we ought to operate as followers of Christ. And the body of Christ needs men who will step up and walk out this role and be willing to to walk in this place and say, yeah, I think this is the right thing and that is the wrong thing. I might not have a Bible passage to even to point at in some cases. I might have to go on what I think is wisdom in this time. Not in conflict with Scripture, but applying Scripture with wisdom to situations that aren't addressed. And so I do it with fear and trembling because I serve a chief shepherd And I pray he gives me the unfading crown of glory. Finally, in verse 5, he turns to you all. Those who are not elders, those who are younger, he calls them, but just anyone that is not elder. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we are prideful about where we stand in our pursuit to root out sin and pursue Jesus, if we are prideful at any point in where we are, we are surely about to fall. And the word says here that if we are prideful in our pursuit of Jesus, God is actually in opposition to you. That's 
pretty scary. If I'm in a place where I'm boasting in my faith in Christ Jesus in terms of like what I've accomplished in my fight against sin and how I have had victory and don't recognize the power of Jesus in this, <laughs> woe is me. Because God is in opposition to me when I start patting myself on the back for the righteousness I've stacked up. And so far be it from you and far be it from me that I walk in pride because God opposes that. But God gives grace to those who are humble. We don't ask for perfection. God didn't ask for perfection. Okay? God died for you and me while we were still his enemies, it says. He died for you before any of your sins were committed. He died for you, right? So he knows. Before he died, he knew you weren't perfect. He gives grace to those who humbly accept the substitution of Jesus on the cross for you. And so clothe yourself with this. And toward one another, clothe yourself with this. Do not compare one to another and say, oh, they're not so good and I'm better than them. There's no ranking in the church. Elder isn't a ranking in the church. It's a, it's a servanthood to the church. An elder is marked among the church. It just happens to be that I'm called to a specific role of shepherding the church. And it's actually a pretty scary role because in Hebrews it says that I'm held to account for you. When I read that the first time being an elder, I just like, okay, what? But it shows me the weight of what God has told me to do. It says, I'm in account for you. Not to put any pressure on you, but I answer for you also. You answer for you, but I, as your elder, also answer for you. That's scary to me. And, and I'm sure it was scary to First Peter, or to Peter, as he's instructing the church in things they're wading through in their culture. So, I don't do so for my own gain, or to domineer or control. I do so, hopefully, with the heart of Jesus that there's something greater at stake and it's worth it to me to fight these battles. It's worth it to me to, to work for truth in our lives and to root out sin in our lives. It's worth it to me. As much as it's worth it for a blue angel to fly through the sky at 700 miles an hour and risk life and limb to portray the strength of America, it is so worth it to me to go to any end in life to be sure that all of you know that I exalt Christ Jesus alone. And my desire and heart is that you too would simply fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. He began it. He will complete it. 
throwing off all the sin that so easily entangles and running the race that is marked out before you. Not so you can stack up some good deeds. Not that you can show how much sin you opposed. But rather, that you could know the glory of the Lord would shine upon you and His kingdom would go forth in the midst of you. Will you be hated for it in this world? Yes. Will you suffer for it in this world? Yes, you will. Will it be the most fulfilling adventure you ever go on? Yes, it will. Will the world think so? No. They're going to look at us and go, you're mundane, you're boring, you don't do all the fun stuff that we all do. I don't care. (laughs) I am so fulfilled in Christ Jesus. There's nothing, there's no thrill I want to seek in this life. I just want the Lord to be known. And so rejoice these things that we walk away with. Rejoice in suffering for the name of Christ. If you suffer in the name of Christ, you're in good company because Jesus began this faith by dying on a cross. And as much as we want to say, oh, well, he was God, so it was easy, da-da-da-da-da. All right, well, like, you take on a scourge of, you know, 40 lashes, and, and, and you have a crown of thorns crushed in your head, and, and you have nails crushed through your hands and your feet, and, and tell me that he didn't feel any of that. He did. He felt it for you. And so if you suffer at his name, rejoice. You're in good company. But don't suffer on account of your sin. Allow Holy Spirit to judge your heart that you won't let your sin go unchecked in your life. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And the point of that statement is to say that all sin leads to death. That's the result of it. Its trajectory is death. Any Any sin at all. Any of this sin, all of it, in some way, whether in flesh or in spirit, it leads to death. That is the result. All sin brings death and destruction in the form of consequences to you, to your loved ones, to strangers. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus, our Lord. So rejoice in suffering for the name of Jesus, but ensure you don't suffer on account of letting your sin go unchecked in your life. Stop it as early as you can. God says he he knows your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. He actually challenges us to take captive our thoughts and submit them to the Lord Jesus. So we've been talking about actions of sin, but God even challenges us, the the reason God challenges us to take captive our thoughts is that thoughts become words, and words become actions, and actions become consequences. And so he challenges us, take captive your very thoughts. 
I know your thoughts, and as they come in, take them captive to the name of Christ. Take up the cross and follow Jesus. Ensure you don't suffer on account of your sin. And finally, to me and to you, I think I'd just say to me again, I take account for you. I just commit to you today. Okay? The word says, I take account for you. And so I'm, I'm saying it to you now. I take account for you. I take account for you. I take account for you. Don't clap at it, right? Don't praise me for it. I don't care. I do it for the name of Christ. I do it willingly, not out of compulsion. I do it because God has blessed me so much, and all I want to do is serve him. And so I willingly, not out of compulsion, take account for you. And I admit it's scary, but I do it. And I'm willing for it. And so I want you to know in response, I take account for you. So please respect that I take account for you. If I, if I come across blunt, if I come across domineering, I'm sorry, call me out on it. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to hear it. But please know, I do it from a place of actually taking the Bible seriously and going, at the judgment, I don't even know what it means. I have no idea what that means, right? I'm satisfied in Christ that I'll fully receive eternal life. But the word says in some way, shape, or form, when I'm at judgment seat, he's going to say, you know, you were kind of slacking there for a few years, and you let a lot of people pass by and didn't speak what needed to be spoken. And that's on you. Oh, man. So please respect and challenge me because I desire to take account for you, not domineering, but in love and respect to spur you on to a spiritual truth that your heart would be closer and closer and closer every day to the Lord Jesus. No pressure, Luke. He also takes account for you. You can tell him. <laughs> Remind Luke. He's got half of this account. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, why are you taking us through First Peter? It's so heavy. We just, we just want to go read about your parables and your, and your miracles again. <laughs> and just be in awe of what you, what you did and how you loved. And, um, we thank you that you're in charge of that. Um, God, that, that you saw fit to compel us in this way. And um, I don't regret it. I don't want to make light of that. Um, 
But God, these are hard words, and um, I just pray for us as a body that uh, we would count the risk of clothing ourselves with humility and love toward one another, uh, of, of being vulnerable, uh, of being transparent, uh, of, of hearing each other's hearts and, and challenging each other. Um, and so God, help us to love one another. To not grumble in showing hospitality to each other. But to really give ourselves for each other. There's certainly a risk that in dealing with sin and preaching on sin and confronting sin in ourselves and in one another that offense will be taken. That words will be misplaced. That things will be said that are from the flesh, not the Spirit. And so God, we pray that in speaking the truth and love to one another, uh, you would give us grace. God, that you would help us to be humble in the end and just humbly present the truth of God to one another. And be willing, as Peter was willing, to write this letter to the region uh, of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and say, like, hey, listen, I, I know the world around you um, is frolicking in the desires of their flesh and drinking what they want to drink and eating what they want to eat and, and doing what they want to do and saying what they want to say and all this because their flesh just cries out to do it and so they're doing it from just flesh wants to, so I do it. And so we thank you that Peter would write this letter and boldly call these things out in the church and say, not so with you. The reason not so is not to give you some list to make life uh, drudgery for you, but rather that you would flourish the way I created you to flourish. Help us be reminded that you are our creator, that you formed us and made us, shaped us and equipped us, And help us to trust your word. Let us look again, so cliche, at the Bible as uh, the manual for life. <laughs> and help us apply it to our lives and walk in it boldly. We desire you to be honored in all things and and we, we declare with Peter, may judgment start at household of God. Lord, may you look inside this body, challenge our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit.
We can say to one another all we want, you should do this or you shouldn't do that. But at the end of the day, Holy Spirit, you are present here. And you are welcome here. And so we just ask, God, search our hearts. Know us. Know our inmost thoughts. Lead us in the way everlasting. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.